Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It... Oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan, author of the series of books, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, 10 volumes, and soon to be 11, all available in paperback, ebook, and Kindle format at Amazon. And if you're an audiophile, you like to listen while you work, volumes 1 through 9 are currently available at Amazon, iTunes, and uh, what else, Kev? Kindle. Uh, no, no, the audio book. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you can pick them up at Audible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, without any further ado, let me introduce you to my brother, who you've already heard, and my co-host, KJ Sheehan. How are you, Kev? I'm doing great. The not-so-useful brother. <laughs> yeah, little... <laughs> A little foul up, a little snafu there on the live. I don't line. know where you get that stuff. It's the same place as last week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, folks, uh, a listener to the podcast, a good friend of the show, uh, Jerry, uh, who happens to be the fellow who had the Mendenhall Glacier uh, sighting while flying uh, up in Alaska that we covered, I think, last week. Right, Kev? I think so. Uh, anyways, uh, Jerry is in the hospital in Denver, and I'm going to ask everybody who has a mind and a heart to pray for Jerry in Boulder, Colorado. Mm. So uh, we're hoping for speedy recovery, a full recovery for Jerry. He's a good guy, and uh, he just got knocked to the mat for a little bit. Mm. So uh, do that if you would. And, uh, Kev, the rain is clearing out. I actually see some sun, and the wind chimes are clanging away outside. If anybody hears wind chimes, <laughs> I don't think you can, but I have two big it's not a, chimes. It's not a Bigfoot alarm? No, no, it's not a Bigfoot alarm. Although, if he chose to sneak up on the lawn and rattle them around, uh, that would be a heck of a doorbell. <laughs> I'm just saying, could be. <laughs> yeah, Bigfoot alarm system. <laughs> I have ropes strung around the property with huge wind chimes all over the place. Gang, 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 gang. <laughs> ah, it's a Bigfoot. Yeah, all all things being equal, Bill, weather-wise, the weather should be getting good up by you because in North Carolina yesterday it was really windy, blowing the dog off the leash, as we like to say. Uh-huh. And today it's spectacular, just beautiful. Yeah, so that's what we're, we're stepping into here, and I'm just looking forward to it. 
Very we had good. we had eight weekends if you include uh, what would be uh, uh, Labor Day, right? Right. Uh, eight or nine weekends in a row that were rained out. What a crazy thing, huh? Yeah. But no, uh, it's it's good for growing grass, though. You know, I seeded <laughs> this fall, and the new grass came in great. Yeah, no, nah, it's good stuff, you know. Uh, uh, I, I'm not uh, one to bitch about it. I'm just, you know, when you're in it, uh, you, you're looking for some sunshine, you know. Oh, yeah. And, uh, sunshine is more fun. <laughs> so, brother, what do we have in our cryptids in the news and other oddities segment today? Yeah, so we're going to talk about two things, Bill. All right. First, uh, we had one of the... Uh, publications in the UK that does a good job covering all the cryptids and that they published uh, a chart with the number of Bigfoot sightings recorded by state in the US. So you've seen these before. So we're going to talk about that a minute, maybe give you a little test. And then we're going to switch gears entirely. And we're going to go out to Papua New Guinea and talk about the Solomon Giants. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So first off, all right, here's the test. A drum roll, please. The top ten Bigfoot sightings by state. Not the not the type of sighting, but where do you think the most sightings are? Uh well now this is a toss-up. I got I got three locations. Yep. I'm thinking uh and it's a little bit random. Uh, three things I would say are in contention. Uh, Washington. Number one. Okay. And then I'm thinking, damn, it might even be like uh, Illinois and Florida. No, Florida's number three. So that's a good guess because I wouldn't have guessed Florida number three. Yeah, I'm thinking number like number two maybe, is the home of the original sighting, oh, California. Yeah, California. Yeah, Northern California, uh, and other areas of California. To be honest with you, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. So I was pretty. I was and you pretty, said you said Illinois. Well, there's a lot of stuff in that Michigan, Illinois. Uh, yeah, Illinois. Illinois number five. Okay. Which I wouldn't have guessed, so you clearly are the expert. Number four is Ohio, which we've yeah. seen a lot there. Yeah. Now, one of the states that we've heard a lot about isn't in the top ten, which is surprising. So you mentioned Michigan. That comes in at number eight. Um, your favorite pronunciation state. Oregon. That comes in at number six. Yep. And number seven is the home of the big thicket. Yeah, Texas. You got that right. Yep. And then number nine, Momo's place. Uh, Momo would be uh, uh, Ohio, right? Or no. Illinois? No, the Missouri monster. Oh, Momo. Missouri. I'm sorry. <laughs> I tricked you. And then my, last uh, is last My is geography. My geography is a little off when I'm yeah. thinking about the interconnection of the states. Yeah, you're good. But the last one is Georgia. Georgia. Um, that was a little surprising because, like, Pennsylvania didn't come up in the top ten, which I would think Pennsylvania would. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, Colorado didn't come up. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Interesting. But, you know, there are plenty of places uh, where these things are being seen in numbers. And exactly how many numbers, uh, it's uncertain. Now, you know, uh, Rick, our field investigator, Rick, if you're out there, I love you, bro. Uh, Rick... Uh, in retirement had told me a while ago that he was working on my books to kind of organize where and when encounters happened. Mm. And I thanked him because I said to him, this is actually something I wanted to do, but God knows who's got the time with my schedule. And uh, I just wrapped up volume 11, which my book lady is going to start working on uh, next Monday. She says, and, uh, of course, 10 uh, in audible format is done. I'm waiting for my sound engineer to uh, get to it and get that up and running. But, man, I'm busier than a one-arm wallpaper. And Rick, one-arm wallpaper hanger. And Rick said he was going to try to organize that. I don't know if he's still working on that or not. But if you are, Rick, uh, I'd be interested in seeing that data once you uh, compile it, you know. He might be too busy doing field reporting. <laughs> He's a tremendous field reporter for this podcast. Yeah, he does a lot of, uh, he proposes a lot of inf information. He He's scouring the news, which we yeah. like. <laughs> Rick is our designated web crawler. <laughs> awesome. Which is cool. Yeah, so we're going to go to Solomon Islands. Okay. And um, the Solomon Islands are a sovereign state of Oceania, that region, and it's east of Papua New Guinea. So I was saying we were going to Papua New Guinea. We're actually going east of that. Okay. And um, the, the Solomon Islands were discovered in modern times, relatively modern times, by Alvaro de Mendaña. And he was a Spaniard that set sail from Peru and discovered um, the uh, Solomon Islands in 1568. Wow. So he was sailing the seas a long time ago. Now, what's his name again? His name is Alvaro de Mendaña. Are you sure he's not German? See. <laughs> <Si. laughs> See, <laughs> see, si. si. um, <laughs> not German, but uh, speaking of the Germans, but not the Germans, but thinking of speaking of the axis of evil and World War II, the Solomon Islands are probably most famous to us here in the U.S. for the Battle of Guadalcanal. Oh, yeah. So that's part of the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the one of the bloodiest battles of World War II between the United States and Japan out there, um, and um, when so going back to fifteen sixty eight, when Alvaro uh, went and discovered the Solomon Islands, what he discovered was people, uh, you know, a group of people in the Solomon Islands that were infamous for headhunting and cannibalism, mm -hmm. um, and that there were over 120 indigenous languages that are spoken in the Solomon Islands. So 
even though it's a group of many islands, they seem to be very isolated from one another, and then also very isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah, now, Kev, uh, let me interject for a second. You know, our father, uh, folks, our, our dad in World War II was stationed in New Guinea, and uh, they had an airstrip there where they were working on and repairing uh, warbirds uh, that were in combat in that region. And, Kev, I remember Dad saying to me that there were still headhunters and cannibals on that island when they were there. Yeah, 100%. I bet they're still there now. I mean, I don't know for sure, but... Some yeah, of these, so, some of these islands are really the islands that time forgot. Yeah, and they were there, and Dad was talking about it. Also, the giant insects. Yeah, I remember him talking about huge moths and gigantic spiders. Yeah. So that was a the 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 land lost in time, like you said. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So and go that, ahead. I, I didn't by mean the to way, interrupt the, you. The Japanese when they. Uh, you know, invaded the island to to take it over and build uh, and fortify it, right? They built all of these bunkers and tunnels and stuff like that uh, to defend it from uh, becoming an airbase for the United States so that the U.S. could invade eventually J Japan. Mm -hmm. um, they, they spoke of the fact that they saw these giants on the island mm -hmm. that were like 12 feet tall, mm -hmm. which is pretty wild right yeah i mean 12 foot my but god the, but the real research on the solomon island giants is centered around a gentleman called marius bor borion easy for me to say yeah and um he's an australian guy that um did a lot of work in the solomon islands as a helicopter pilot and an engineer and ended up marrying uh, a Solomon Islander. So his wife is a native there and ended up spending a lot of time there. And he kept hearing stories about these giants and decided to do more research on it and eventually write a book about the giants of the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. And his book is called The Solomon Island Mysteries. And uh, boy, on first chronicles the information he was gathering from the natives of whom his wife is one, right? Okay. He, and he came to know that there were giants all over the islands, and they're typically over 10 feet tall. Wow. And get this. He says that there is evidence that the giants actually grow taller than that. Oh, man. Yeah. And he calls them in the book the Guadalcanal Giants. And he says he describes them as having very long black brown or reddish hair, protruding double eyebrows, bulging red eyeballs, flat noses, and a wide gaping mouth facial features. Yeah, uh, what does that remind you of? Mm, exactly. Crazy. So it's not just the Solomon Giants as in giant humans. Oh, no, no. These are like these appear to be some type of ape. Yeah. Like so this guy is describing like a gigantopithecus exactly. type of creature because that was right in their wheelhouse uh, based on. Now, you know, folks, I don't know if you know it, but the only thing that was ever found 
as far as I know, from a Gigantopithecus, was a section of the mandible, the lower jawbone of a human or uh, really anything. They called the lower jaw the mandible and the upper, the maxilla. Uh, And they did a reconstruction based on the dimensions of the mandible of what they do a build-out. In other words, this is a scientific rendering of what they think the rest of the creature would look like based on the dimensions and building out from that. And they came up with the giant ape uh, that we, uh, in the Bigfoot world, refer to as Gigantopithecus, or this giant uh, ape creature. Right, and some folks think... Giganto, gi- Gigantopithecus. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, migrated across the Bering Sea Bridge. Right. From Asia into North America, you know, a bazillion years ago. Right. And could have been a, a takeoff from uh, Yeti. Yep. Uh, you yeah, know, connection and- between Yeti and Sasquatch. Correct. You know, yeah. just kind of migrating or wandering for food or whatever. Just uh, who knows why things wander the way they do, you know? Exactly. Some people wonder why I'm wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> now, now the thought I'm going to leave you with here about the Solomon Giants, I think, is very interesting. So when he was researching there in the islands to write his book... Um, he wrote, and I quote, the Solomon Islanders are lacking the understanding that their giant race would be a big scientific discovery to the rest of the world. So, you know, these folks, they're isolated from the world and even isolated from one another. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, he says, uh, whether by design or not, it's appropriate that the Solomon Islands National tagline is the place that time forgot interesting huh it's really interesting i thought yeah yeah i mean to have it as your national i think that's okay tagline right or sure a tagline logo whatever like all license plates right yeah live and live free or die in uh the granite state and uh new york the empire state you know but there's this to land that time, forgot. <laughs> First in flight here in North Carolina, even that's Ohio, right. even though Ohio tries to claim it, because <laughs> that's where uh, Orville and Wilbur's bike shop was. Apparently, I'm like, come on, the plane flew here. Yeah, Kitty Hawk, stop it. Yeah, no, it didn't fly there, Kev. It flew in Suffolk County, Long Island. Be the home of the Buckeyes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that is the Solomon Island Giants, Bill. Fantastic, man. And uh, once again, it seems to me uh, that the Bigfoot has reared its head uh, in another form. And, you know, we're talking 12-footers. You know, this is some gigantic beast. No doubt about uh, it. Yeah, uh, that's being seen, and this is not the first time that I've heard twelve footers. It's almost too hard to wrap your mind around. 
Yeah. When when I start hearing 12 foot, I'm thinking, you know, this dude is really stretching the truth here. Or then we get into that realm that I talk about frequently where you're seeing something that you is unrecognizable or unacceptable to your mind, and you're just throwing numbers around. Sure. Well, but, it's hard to scale it, right, especially yeah. at a distance. Right, for weight, for height, you yeah. know, dimensions. But uh, here we go again, you know, over 10 feet. And no, that wild. is a big... Mu- Who was that guy? Uh, I don't know why I can't think of it now. I just saw a picture of his yesterday. You know that guy that grew really tall? He was kind of famous back in the 40s. Uh, what the heck was his no, name? No, not the wrestler, Andre the Giant. No, way bigger than Andre. Oh, I know who you mean. The guy who was in the Guinness Book of World Records That's right, forever. right. The world's yeah. tallest man or something. Yeah, I don't know what his name was. Uh, but when you see this guy's picture, I mean, good grief. He was like huge. I, but he was lanky. He was a very slender build for the height. Yeah. But, man, compared to other human beings, it's like, wow, where did this guy come from? Yeah. You know, huge, huge person. You I know. think he came from the Solomon Islands, but that's just me. And he lost his hair when he was coming over on the boat or something? I don't know. Maybe he shaved. <laughs> Full body shave. <laughs> All right, Bill, what kind of creepy account do you have for us this week? Uh, well, this is pretty uh, interesting. And once again... I can't tell you, folks, how many accounts I have that surround elk hunting. There's definitely a connection between, in my opinion, right? There's a connection between where elk live and thrive, and in many cases, where Bigfoot is found. And basically, here we have another one. So, uh... This account was given to me by Edwin Wright and his hunting partner, George Hendrickson, both whom are hunters from Oregon. And this is what they had to say. Every year, Eddie and I plan a week of fall hunting in Washington's rainforest. Our our target for this year was a hunt for Roosevelt elk. The elk live in the thick, dense underbrush and forest and the coastal mountain range of Washington State. This is the only location or one of the only locations in the world where they can be found. This is in particular, folks, the Roosevelt elk. This region of the U.S. receives well over 100 inches of rainfall annually. And because of this, the underbrush is extremely lush. Now, any hunter will tell you that this thick underbrush brings with it advantages and disadvantages. The advantages are that it can provide plenty of cover for the hunter as well as being an ideal habitat for these animals. The disadvantages are the constant rain and dampness as well as the extremely limited visibility for taking a quality shot at your prey. Most rifle shots will be taken at a range of 50 yards or less, and your typical bow shot is between 20 and 30 yards. He says that once I took a bow shot at five yards in there, that's how close you can get to the animals in this forest. Uh, 
Because of the diverse weather and habitat challenges in the region, Roosevelt elk are one of the most difficult species to hunt. It's because of this difficulty that time spent on the hunt has a direct correlation to your success rate. Eddie and I keep a detailed hunting log on each of our trips. By doing so, we can fine-tune our techniques to help ensure that we have successful hunts in the future. We have found that when we plan hunts for 10 to 12 days, we have a 100% success rate, whereas a five-day hunt only yields between 60 and 80%. Pretty cool, these logs he keeps. Our typical hunt consists of both bow and rifle. We start with the bow, since it's our preferred method, But if we find ourselves running out of time, the rifle becomes our weapon of choice. There are so many times when the animal is so close to us in the undergrowth and yet still too far away to land an effective bow shot. The rifle can be effective, and yet the rifle can be effective on day one for a well-schooled hunter. Sorry about that little uh, snafu in there. If you're going to have success with the bow, all of your ducks must be in order, and that starts with the technique and location. Our most successful methodology to date is hunting either within the confines of a well-timbered canyon or near any river drainage areas that you could find. We also construct blinds in well-traveled area and use calls to attract the bulls getting real aggressive with them when they start to get in tight to our position. Generally, the two of us like to situate ourselves closely to each other whenever possible, with the slope of a canyon being our preferred haunt. From that position, we have had the greatest success in sighting moving animals both above and below us. An elk can surprise you by moving right across your path while you're stalking, and being taken down with a quick shot. Whenever possible, we also bring our quad with us in the truck. We want to get as close as possible to the target area before the hiking begins. It's also a great help in transporting the meat back with us when we get lucky. So here we go, all of the freaking facts and data. For this particular hunt, we planned for four days, even though this is on the lowest end of the success window. We knew the area well, and our confidence level was high, having experienced good success here in the past, and we felt that we would score again. After setting up our tent by the truck, we took the quad into the forest and began our day's hunt. It's a rough hike into this terrain, but the two of us work out during the year to prepare ourselves for such excursions. The area we were heading into was a steeply sloped canyon that had very well-used trail running up and down within it. The trick here was to position yourself in the best possible way to get off a quality bow shot. Too many times an elk is just out of effective range or slips behind some cover right as you're ready to let go. That, my friend, is the struggle of hunting. Day one came and went without seeing any elk. On day two, we headed directly back into the same location since we were satisfied with the overall animal population that we had seen the day before. 
We saw a giant 5x5 Roosevelt bull that walked by us at about 50 yards. We waited for him to come closer, but no such luck. We also saw a 3x3 after him, but we passed, hoping to bag the larger, more mature bull. The next day, we moved our makeshift blinds into a slightly lower position. If this large bull had passed again, he would be marginally closer to us than he had been the day before. However, we still didn't know if he would even come back, so we positioned ourselves and waited. At 11.17 in the morning, about 30 elk came running down the trail. I know the exact time because I had just looked down at my watch, and you never see these animals running unless they've been frightened. We looked at each other through the opening in the brush between the two blinds. Just four minutes after the herd ran through, I heard the snap of a branch, and my eyes rolled in the direction of the sound. I could see a tremendous black figure moving down the trail, passing behind an opening in some pine boughs. I gave a small finger signal to Eddie, and a moment later, a gigantic Bigfoot appeared, walking through a break in the trees where the herd had just run by. Three steps later, he was once again concealed by the trees before reappearing yet again. We watched him as he walked down the entire trail toward the base of the canyon the creature coming in and out of our view numerous times before it completely left our sight. The two of us came out of our blinds speechless. We first looked at each other and then looked down into the canyon where he had walked. We were unable to put any words together, and I was completely and totally dumbfounded by what had just transpired. I was in a daze, being as close as I will ever come to a true state of shock, feeling like my mind had short-circuited. I was momentarily shut off as a human being. I'm surprised I didn't crap in my pants, and if it had come towards us, I'm not even sure if I could have pulled my rifle out and shot it. It almost felt like I was under some type of mind control as it came into view and passed by as if all my abilities had been put on hold, very difficult to describe and to put into words. I think it must have been about 15 or 20 minutes before the two of us had regained full functionality. At that point, the forest had become completely still and there were no signs of life whatsoever. We walked over to the trail and there were no indications of any prints, just wide, flattened areas of pine needles where it had walked. The ground was very hard and well-traveled, which made it impossible to make real prints. The two of us had heard of all the talk of Bigfoot. We were living and hunting in places where many people claimed to have seen them, and yet up to that point in time, we had seen nothing ourselves. When the fog in our minds had dissipated, we went back to the truck and recorded all of the details in a notebook. 
Our sighting had occurred at 11.20. It was drizzling out. We had our rain gear on in the blinds. We heard and saw the elk herd run by, followed by hearing the branch snapping. When it first came into view, the Bigfoot did not seem like it was chasing the elk. It was just traveling and had more than likely spooked the herd unintentionally. They must have seen it as a predatory animal to them, otherwise they would not have run from it in such a fashion. Because of our position in the blinds, it was much higher than us. It did not stop or turn to look in our direction. Rather, it seemed to be completely unaware of our presence. The two of us agreed it had been every bit of 8 to 10 feet tall, a tremendous monster. Neither one of us could remember measuring it up to anything that it had passed through or by. It was like a mega monster from a comic book or something, reminding me of the way they depict the Hulk busting out of a shirt and flexing his muscles. When it was passing by in front of us, we could see its dark brownish-black hair. It hung off its body and looked kind of shaggy, not at all like a bear's coat, more like a long-haired dog breed. Another thing that came to my mind from the back view, the muscles of its upper back were so enormous that its head was virtually concealed when you looked at it from the side. Its jawline clearly protruded forward from the rest of the face, whereas the nose appeared almost flush. I only recall seeing skin on the face and fingers, but that skin that I did see looked to be an extremely dark gray color. Its face also seemed deeply wrinkled and almost like it had grooves instead of wrinkles. Even though we hadn't scored a kill, we left that day and headed back to Oregon. I think I speak for both of us when I say that we are different people today because of that event. We will never hunt or go in the woods with the same mindset that we had before. And seeing that Bigfoot had transformed both of our lives and our thinking. Talk about details, Kev. Yeah, I was I was expecting uh, some really good description based on folks that keep such detailed logs about their hunting trips, and you didn't disappoint. <clears throat> I mean, I didn't mean to bore you, but I give you what I'm given. Oh, no, it's not boring. It's interesting, all the detail. Yeah, just uh, telling you about how they plan things out and their success rate and how many days and the weather and blah, 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 blah. No, and I mean the description of the gray skin and, you know. Yeah, well, see, his their attention to detail carried right over to logging and writing the data down while it was fresh in their minds of the entirety of the experience. Right. I mean, that's the key of any kind of journaling, right? Do it, do it right after the event. Right, when whether everything's fresh. Whether it's a hike, fresh. a hunt, or whatever. Right. And uh, my friend uh, Philip, again, when he was in a car, when he was a coroner, he said that you know it was typical at an accident scene or any kind of scene 
uh, when questioning witnesses, you know, you get a whole bunch of stories as to what the people saw, but many times it was after the fact. Yeah. And like that telephone game, like, you, you know, when I tell you something and by the time it gets six or eight people away, it's it's altered. Yeah. You know, so uh, incredible, right? The Roosevelt elk hunters sitting in the deep brush, uh, a herd having gotten spooked and trotting down the trail. Hey, listen, I know from the deer that are around my house, they don't just start running unless they do get spooked. Otherwise, they're just moseying around. Yep. So, uh, but when they do, one jumps and typically the others will start to launch uh, rank and file, you know. Interesting. Very interesting. So Very cool. Eight to ten feet. Mm. You talk ten That's feet. That's a giant. You talk ten feet, you're getting into that Solomon Island giant character. No doubt about it, man. You know, so those buggers That's are That's a around. big beast and they're out in the hotbed. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have a pet out in the front lawn. He's all of eight feet tall. He doesn't bother me, but... By the way, I did get the stencil that you sent out, and uh, I told my bride, uh, she's like, what's in the tube? I said, oh, it's a stencil from Bill, uh, so I can make a uh, Bigfoot cutout to be peeking around the trees in the backyard. (laughs) And she said, what are you talking about? I said, come on, it's a charming... A little charming note of whimsy in the backyard that's eight <laughs> feet tall with glowing red eyes. That's all. <laughs> Just wants to share in the barbecue. <laughs> hey, what are you cooking? Maybe it'll keep the squirrels out of the bird feeder. Yeah. Are you cooking Italian sausages again? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so there you have it, Kev. Awesome uh, grouping there, the Solomon Giants and this monster uh, walking behind the Roosevelt elk, man. Incredible stuff going on. Kev, you got the picture from the trail camera? Oh, yeah. What do you think? You want to post that on the website? I can, yeah. Folks, uh, through a reliable source... Uh, listener to the podcast, friend of a friend, that kind of deal. I'm telling you, man, we got one hell of a snapshot from a trail cam uh, planted in the forest uh, about 40 miles over the Idaho border in uh, Washington State. And uh, I'm telling when you talk about the real deal, you know, look at this thing and tell me that this body is not filling out the skin on this beast. And you hear me talking about that all the time. Uh, this thing looks like it's got muscles upon muscles running up the back into the head. And that forward tilt, uh, uh, the way these things are designed, man, is just uh, unbelievable. I mean... I, I challenge you to look at this and tell me this is a guy in a freaking monkey suit. <laughs> so, Kev, post that up, and folks, Kev will put it with this podcast, Kev? Yeah, this uh, episode, if you go under episodes, uh, this will be 220-220. Right, right. And we'll uh, we'll pop it up there. Yeah. Incredible, man. 
So when we always say, Kev, you know, with the amount of cameras out there now and whatnot, game trail cameras, this and that, you know, uh, you would think it stands to reason that here and there, even in dribs and drabs, uh, some things are going to be captured, you know, and we do see that. We do see that happening, you know, stuff that's thrown out to us and we say, well, I don't know, you know, but some stuff comes through and you're like, bingo, you're a winner. Yeah, 100%. So check into that. So what do we have on our listener mail today, Kevin? Yeah, we'll go through a couple of uh, emails this week, Bill. The first one comes in, I think it's from Emily, but it's spelled a little bit different. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm mispronouncing it, Emily, uh, I'm sorry about that. So they write, on September 18th of this year, we were at the Thunderbird Ranch in Chinlay, Arizona. Hmm. We took a very cool six-wheel drive tour of Canyon de Chile. Hmm. Uh, our Navajo guide and driver, Harold, shared much information and family lore at the different sites that we visited. He often referred to the stories his grandmother told him. At each stop, he'd answer questions. At one stop, I asked him if his grandmother shared any stories of Bigfoot. He very matter-of-factly responded that his grandmother had not, but... Our rangers that have ventured deep into this canyon do report seeing very large footprints. Huh. Then he went on to the next question. I thought that that was interesting. Although no one else seemed to pay attention. He said, I enjoy the show, or she said, I enjoy the show and plan on getting one of your books as a Christmas gift for a curious great nephew. <laughs> Well, thank you, Emily, and good job out there, folks. When you're in these rural places, um, you know, ask that question. I, I certainly do. You know, when I was up fishing in Alaska, one of the first things I asked my guide when I got to know him was, hey, you ever see the hairy man around here? <laughs> and what did he say, Kev? He said no, you know. But he was a pretty young guy, too. You know, mm-hmm. he's a really good fishing guide, but he was probably in his late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, he hadn't seen any. He said, okay. you know, we hear stories about them, but I haven't seen them. Right, right. And that's typically the case. I've heard of them, but I haven't seen one myself. Exactly. You know, and where there's smoke, there's fire. Yep. So, um, by the way, uh, just a side note. Uh, Rob, the Brit up in British Columbia, who I spoke about uh He's been hiking in uh, uh, Sasquatch uh, Provincial Park up there. And uh, he ran across uh, what turns out to be, he wasn't sure what he had run into, but there is a prospector up there who has a little shanty that he's built up there in the woods. And uh, Rob is going to make it a point if he can get to the guy or find him there uh, to try to make a connection with him, uh, perhaps to uh, keep him in mind or start a conversation with him about uh, Bigfoot in the woods up there. Mm. So I'll be interested going on in the future if Rob can develop some type of relationship with this fellow and perhaps uh, gather some information. I mean, 
think about it. How many times are you going to run across a guy that's built a makeshift shanty in the middle of freaking nowhere uh, to prospect for gold, you know, uh, and and use him as like an agent in the woods? Yeah, not too often. Might not- be hard to get him to befriend you, though, too, right? Just yeah, by well- design, the guy's a bit of a loner. Well, Rob had breached a conversation with some other people in town when he ran across the shanty. And they said, oh, yeah, that's the prospector. Okay. And they told him he's a very chatty fellow. There you go. So that's right up Rob's alley, you know, uh, because he's a chatty fellow. (laughs) And uh, I said, wow, if you could get a hold of him, he's probably glad to see some people while he's out there by himself prospecting to run into somebody. It's like a freaking uh, an event, you know. Yeah, it's either one way or the other, I think. You know, either super happy to see you or get off my claim. Well, you know, uh, he told me that there was a bicycle. Now, I have a photograph of this place now. Uh, He had to have somebody bring him in on a trailer or some type of vehicle, some materials. Uh, He's got a bicycle over there uh, and some other stuff. And... uh, you figure somebody has to be like a little bit in cahoots with him, a family member or a friend to have helped him bring the things in because Rob told me that it's it's quite a distance to even a main road. And then if you were on that road, it was an even longer distance to get to a town. So he yeah. didn't he didn't bring this stuff in there on foot or on a bicycle, you know. There was a little bit of planning involved with the setup of this uh, shanty, you know. Very cool. So, well, Bill, I think I think we're going to end there for the week. Okay. Uh, thanks, folks, for listening. Uh, we've been having a lot of chatter on this one, so I I want to be mindful of the time. But we uh, we love all of you for listening, and we love those five star reviews. So please keep them coming. Yeah, and folks, uh, thanks once again, and please go out and buy a book or an audio book and leave a good review on them as well. And if you should find yourself out on the hunt in Washington State, Oregon, or any of the places we named today, Ohio, Florida, the big thicket, you best remember one thing, my friends. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.